Hi, welcome to What Happens Next, Week 10. We are now two and a half months into the quarantine. This is truly staggering. On today's call, we're going to have a more international perspective with viewpoints from the U.K. with Tim Spector and Sweden with Daniel Klein. Eric Topol will speak about wearable sensors and tracing, and Dr. Richard Leviton will discuss what doctors have learned about treatments in the past three months. Jerry Mueller will question the metrics we are using to evaluate COVID. We are also going to discuss business investment in real estate. Myron Scholes will discuss time diversification. David Blitzer will chat about private equity. And my brother, Ron, and Tom Shapiro will discuss trends in real estate. Pamela Prickett will discuss the unclaimed debt of COVID-19. We have a beautiful day in Chicago. Economies have been opening up around the world and locally, so let's see what happens. The Chatham House rules apply for this call. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn more without putting the speaker at risk. The format of the call will be the same as the previous nine weeks. Each speaker will be only given six minutes. At the five-minute point, I may throw in a question or two, and then we're off to the next speaker. I think the format is both fun and incredibly informative. After all the speakers have spoken, there will be a general question and answer period. This call is being recorded. Let's start with our first speaker. Eric Topol is the Gary and Mary West Endowed Chair of Innovative Medicine at Scripps Research. Eric, lead us off. Okay, Larry. Um, my topic is about uh, smartwatches and wristbands, fitness bands for heart rate, resting heart rate. So before I get into that, let me just um, describe the need because everyone talks about testing, testing, testing. But we can't in the United States get to... 330 million people tested on a weekly basis. Uh, we're at 14 million now after three months. And uh, as part of the Rockefeller Foundation plan, action plan, we called for 30 million tests minimum per week. So we're not going to get to that scale. And we also know that testing has its issues of false negatives uh, and for the uh, antibody tests, false positives right now. And they're, they're not rapid turnaround for the most part, and they're, they're certainly not scalable in the time we need it. So during these weeks or months that it will take to get our arms around testing, which is the only way we can see the virus if there's accurate rapid tests, then the only other way we can see the virus indirectly is through either temperature, body temperature, or resting heart rate. Body temperature requires... Uh, someone to take their temperature at least once or twice a day. And we've already seen from Kinza, the smart thermometer with over 2 million Americans, uh, that you can find a COVID-19 hotspot as they did in Florida. Uh, we are using heart rate, and we published on this uh, earlier this year for detecting flu in over 50,000 people who had Fitbits. And it was remarkably accurate, and it predicted where flu uh, outbreaks were occurring even before uh, the CDC could. So we are now applying that for COVID-19. We have a study called DETECT. And if you have any type of smartwatch or fitness band that, that has a captures a heart rate, uh, you can uh, sign up and be part of the study. 30,000 uh, Americans more than that now are, are part of it. Now, when we published our study, uh, back in January in Lancet Digital Health, the German CDC, which is known as the Robert Koch Institute, they adopted that. Uh, they, they put a, a smartwatch app 
uh, into play, and they now have over 500,000 people continuous monitoring of resting heart rate. And in China now, over 1.3 million people uh, are having their heart rate being monitored. This is done in a uh, de-identified way. It's defined clusters of people who have a resting heart rate abnormality from baseline. Now, why is this such a, a, gr a great metric? It's because we know that heart rate goes up before fever, resting heart rate, that many people never have fever, that at least 30% of people who get infected with COVID-19 are asymptomatic, but their bodies are indeed fighting the infection, and we know that, and we expect that their heart rate would show uh, abnormality. And in this quest for reopening, it's yet another way that we can uh, identify trouble spots uh, as we start to uh, get people back to work or back to uh, life in some way uh, without having the advantage of having uh, gotten in front of the outbreak. We're so far behind the outbreak in a pathetic way. So that's the case. Uh, we'd like to get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of participants in the DETECT study. Um, the more we have, the more likely we have, we'll have the whole U.S. covered and we will be able to pinpoint emerging outbreaks before they get legs. That's the promise here. Uh, and that is to be distinguished and differentiated from contact tracing, which is not validated. There's no study to show that it works. And that's, uh, of course, an issue of privacy, an issue of false positives. It's being used. It was just uh, uh, released in the U.S., the Google-Apple joint effort, but it's been used in several other countries like Singapore and South Korea uh, and in the UK, but it's still waiting validation. That is not, this is not about contact tracing. This is a digital surveillance um, 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 project, which we think has high likelihood for success. And we look to the Germans and uh, the Chinese that are already implemented this at scale, who are more likely to find a verification that it uh, detects early outbreaks uh, before we have, because we don't have CDC support. We're just trying to build this uh, hopefully pretty quickly. We launched this app in, uh, in late March, and hopefully uh, we'll see growth over the next several weeks. As everybody knows, this pandemic is going to be going on for at least a couple of years. So uh, this would be a great surveillance tool. Eric, just a quick follow-up. Um, so let's imagine that the your heart rate and temperatures goes up. Will someone contact you, or is this meant just for an area? It's meant for an area. It doesn't work on an individual basis. You need to see a cluster. Uh, we, have, we know there's over 100, 100 million Americans, more than 100 million, have either a smartwatch or a fitness band. And so if we get a fraction of those people that has reasonable geographic coverage and see a cluster, it can't just be one or a few people. Uh, if there's enough people that have a significant change in their basal heart rate, that's the signal. And those people then would, uh, would be uh, contacted for potential testing and deeper study. And by the way, that's the other point is you are getting precision, smart testing, rather than trying to test every American on a frequent basis. This is a continuous way to get an assessment rather than the one-off way with tests that even done, done once a week is still uh, a one-off testing. Uh, what is the name of the app? 
detect study. So if you just go to detectstudy.org, you can sign up. And in, in your world, let's imagine that we find that um, Winneka, Illinois, has turned into a cluster. What would you imagine the public response, to, uh, public government governmental response to be? Right. So the um, local Department of Health would be notified, and they would start to hone in on that neighborhood as to uh, if there's anything going on. Hopefully, it's not a false signal. We didn't see that in the in the flu prediction. But it certainly, as we get closer into flu season, that's going to be the issue because we're going to detect uh, infections. Uh, and so right now we're in pretty good shape because there's no other illness that's, uh, you know, mainstream in the U.S. But as we get into the fall and winter, that's going to be a confounding factor. Very interesting. All right, I'll come back to you in a minute. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Richard Leviton. He is an emergency room doctor and entrepreneur. Go ahead. Hi, Larry. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, it's interesting following Dr. Topol's uh, comments on, um, you know, digital testing. I am uh, sort of obsessed these days with another, another digital technology, and that is pulse oximetry. Um, pulse oximetry is an early marker of lung injury, and uh, this technology basically uh, is standard throughout healthcare and every interaction we have with patients. It's on every ambulance, it's in every emergency department, um, it's throughout the hospital, and you know, a small probe on your finger shoots two um, uh, beams of light through your fingertip and measures heart rate and measures oxygen saturation. The remarkable thing to me about COVID and my experience, um, I spent 10 days at Bellevue at the height of the surge. I now live in rural New England, but couldn't watch this happen to my hometown and not uh, get involved. So I headed down to Bellevue, and what was remarkable about my experience there was watching patients who came in with oxygen saturations of 50%. Normal oxygen saturation by pulse oximetry is 94 to 100%. So seeing these people with 50% was just unimaginable because normally when people have acute drops in oxygen from choking, drowning, other catastrophic things, even severe pneumonia, um, their brains do not tolerate this. They pass out or they seize, they're unresponsive. Most often people with severe pneumonia are in shock or sepsis, um, they have compromised blood flow to the brain, and also their lungs aren't working so carbon dioxide builds up, and that also makes them sleepy. COVID pneumonia is unlike anything we've ever seen because these people are awake. They're talking to us. They're on their cell phones with pulse ox saturations of 50%. They have silently, kind of, or slowly rather, gotten used to this low level of oxygen. I believe this happens over three to five days. And the body can do amazing things if it happens slowly. So if you lose blood a little bit at a time, you can get to very low blood levels, um, whereas if you lose it all of a sudden, you go into shock and you die. And this level of oxygen saturation is incredibly low. So, you know, COVID fascinated me as I saw this. And what we thought when we first started with all these patients was looking at terrible chest X-rays, incredible low oxygen saturations, um, and increased respiratory rates that we had to put breathing tubes in all of them. And what happened in my 10 days in New York was truly extraordinary. Through social media, some experience from the Italians, uh, 
eMERGE docs in New York City learned that we could avoid intubating a lot of these patients simply by putting them onto their stomach and using non-invasive means of oxygenation, specifically high-flow nasal cannula. And so when I started, we were intubating everybody with severe pneumonia from COVID. And when I finished, about two-thirds of patients we could uh, treat with high-flow oxygen and avoid intubation. I wrote one of, uh, well, I wrote the first paper on this with Nick Caputo out of Lincoln and Ruben Strayer out of Maimonides. And out of 50 patients, uh, two-thirds avoided intubation. So, um, you know, what I want to share with your group is two things. Number one, we've had incredible success in avoiding intubation. Not being, or being able, rather, to avoid intubation in two out of three patients is an incredible win that the public hasn't heard about. And secondly, that if we use pulse oximetry early in monitoring COVID patients, we can find the pneumonia earlier, and we're more likely to do better and keep them off the ventilator. We can start anti-inflammatory agents earlier. We can bring them into the hospital earlier. So out of Italy recently, um, close to 300 patients showed up. They were diagnosed with point-of-care testing, found to have COVID. They were sent home with pulse oximeters, and 5% of them came back when their oxygen got to 92%. They didn't realize it subjectively, but the pulse oximeter told them to come back. They brought them back into the hospital, and nobody died. So the amazing things that I'm sharing with you are, number one, we've made incredible strides avoiding mechanical ventilation, and number two, the earlier use and monitoring of pulse oximetry, I think, will cause a logarithmic collapse in the resources that so far we have been throwing at COVID in terms of an early aggressive intubation strategy, which we are now moving away from. Great. Um, okay, um, I'm going to go to our next speaker. Uh, Tim Spector, are you on the line? I am, yes. Hi. Perfect. All right, so um, Tim is the head of the Department of Twin Research and Genetic Epidemiology. Uh, you're in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with your real-time tracking? Yeah, so uh, about mid-March, we're closing down my unit, and uh, I uh, was working with a, a biotech company called Zoe, and we decided to get an app together um, to do some symptom tracking. So they converted the, so their team doing nutrition into getting a, an app together in four days. And we launched this the, on the 24th of March, the day that the UK locked down uh, with no great expectations, but the app went viral and within 24 hours had a million uh, downloads. And we're now at uh, three, over 3.3 million people in the UK and about uh, 400,000 in, in the US and Sweden. And this is one of the biggest citizen science sort of health projects I think there's ever been. Um, and very soon, within a few days, we'd uh, got algorithms together looking at uh, all the symptoms, working out where the classic ones were. We were able to pick up hotspots, um, just like Eric was uh, talking about in his, in his talk, um, and we were able to pick up where a week before hospital um, activity was, was going on and tracked this epidemic as it peaked a few days later and then started to drop. And the 
what we're able to do now, as well as prevalence, we can now um, estimate incidence rates. And the um, other thing we did is the most exciting thing we saw was we were asking about all kinds of symptoms on the on this app, which is just a mobile phone app. Um, and we just kept increasing the range of symptoms. So we now have 17 different symptoms and we put them into uh, algorithms because we now have about 150,000 people that are getting uh, swab tests. So we use that as a training set uh, to train the algorithm, which is now about, um, uh, you know, between 70 and 80% uh, accurate, uh, which is getting better all the time. And we saw this amazing wide range of symptoms that, um, no one else was really looking at, and, and many of them, like loss of sense of smell, was actually more predictive of a positive test than any of the other ones. And we're seeing new ones like skin rashes and muscle pains that are also looking very similar. And because of this uh, incredible resource with um, these millions of people, we, and we have now about 1.5 million people logging every day, we can actually work out um, daily where, where things are happening uh, in real time. And the other advantage of getting all this symptom data that no one was really interested in in collecting because it was rather hard to, is that we, we've actually worked out that the average duration of symptoms in the population is about 10 days, that 10% um, of people, it lasts for more than three weeks, and 5%, there's this long tail, um, it lasts more than a month. And this has really sparked another sort of social media frenzy of people really wanting to find out more about this group and understand what's going on in these long-affected long people in the population, whether they're still infected. So we have a number of trials going on. Um, but I think the, the main thing we're, we're trying to do is get this virtual diagnostic um, that is going to be nearly as good as a swab test that costs nothing and could then be rolled out to other countries um, where they can't afford testing uh, has uh, great potential value uh, in, in the forthcoming future. And um, we've done all this without any great government support or any charity work. And we've now done it, um, raised some money on crowdfunding. So I, I, it's very exciting to be involved in this, this research that's generated about a dozen papers in, 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 uh, in just eight weeks. Tim, just a couple of questions. Um, how, how do you, you, you you get data from the UK government as well? How does it contrast with your own? In other words, um, are they getting different sorts of results from a? Well, well, with now um, the UK government didn't have any data at, at all when we started this. They were just had uh, hospital deaths and admissions. And um, but what we found is they've started seeing surveys now, and so they do swab surveys on uh, 20,000 people uh, every every week, and those rates are now the same as our data. So we're getting rates of about 0.3 percent, and that's exactly equal. And we've also worked out that the number of new cases per day is around nine to 10,000 people. Uh, this is people newly sick, and that's exactly the same as the government estimate based on the change in antibody rates and also the um, from their household uh, random household survey. So that's really exciting to think that you know this this app and this algorithm is um, providing the same level of 
of data and prevalences as these other methods because you don't want to rely on just one of these. I think when they all have their problems, uh, as we know, so it, it's it's really reassuring. You know, we've we've heard that there's a very large asymptomatic population, and I just want to drill down a little bit on what you think the word asymptomatic means in this context. Do you think asymptomatic really meant that it someone maybe have a cough or a slight temperature for a day, and, it, and it's a nuisance? Just it did make the a level of being a, just a nuisance, or do you think that uh, in other words? On your tail of the distribution, you talked about people who had had this very extended and in-depth um, sickness. But I imagine that uh, the tail is on the other side is also of interest. Uh, those people that have hardly any symptoms or those people that have no symptoms, can we, what can have you learned from in that aspect of the tail? Well, uh, I think exactly right. I think the most authorities were only interested in fever and persistent cough. And now we've got another 15 other symptoms. Um, they would probably qualify as symptomatic if they were examined or a dermatologist looked at the kids, for example. And we're seeing different symptoms um, are important at different age groups. And, and um, I think we just we haven't scraped the surface at all of what these symptoms are. And I think the, the asymptomatic rate, which most people put it around 15 to 20 percent, is probably much lower than that if you looked really hard. And I think this is really important, particularly as schools are reopening, to work out which, uh, which people have been infected. Um, and we won't really know this until we start uh, drilling down more. But we are asking about children, and, pe and parents are able to log on the app for their children as well. And, uh, uh, but we do need those people swabbed so that we can get a good training set to see whether they really did have the uh, infection or not. But I think by everybody understanding that there are this huge, really weird range of symptoms. Everyone can be informed, and actually that's what we need to do. We need to educate populations about this condition so they can take appropriate action and not just pretend it's very simple and it's only you know, just a few little symptoms and that you can measure it with a temperature gauge, which is completely wrong. Yeah, I always want to follow that up. So I think employers are planning to, you know, take a temperature zap at the guy's forehead when he walks in the office. Is that a ridiculous mm -hmm. approach? Um, it's not ridiculous, except you're not going to pick up, you know, maybe more than about 12% of people, depending on which day you're doing it. Um, and uh, we have, you know, and it's... It, and you have to look at the other things. So equally as good and probably better because it lasts longer is getting some smelling salts or oil of cloves or peppermint and getting to smell that. That would be actually more useful at airports and in offices. Uh, and also asking them and giving them a checklist and say, you know, in the last week, have you had any of these, you know, 15 symptoms and doing it properly? Because I think it's a pure placebo to just scan people's temperature. Uh, that's thinking of this disease as the flu, which it definitely isn't. And that's what we just need to re-educate people and say this is, this is not just a flu. It is very different. It can last a long time. And you know, one in 20 people will have this for possibly months and may even be secreting the virus. And so we have to educate everybody about it and be much more aware. And so if anyone wants to check out, we, we have all the stuff. Sorry. What is um, what kind of symptoms do kids have that's different from adults? They seem to get more rashes, um, these so-called COVID toes and fingers. 
and they can have very transient rashes on their body. Um, they um, get uh, fatigue, but it, that can be quite acute, but only lasts maybe a day. Um, and um, sore throat is another one. Um, but most people tend to start with the same uh, symptoms on day one, which are very nonspecific, because you know, we've, we've looked at this and we've now found that um, we get about five different disease clusters when we look at all these symptoms together. So it, it's looking like you need to start seeing how these cluster uh, in these disease subtypes. And it, we think that two out of the five are related to a really high risk of needing hospitalization. And the other three really are pretty benign. So we're just getting into this and we need to start also breaking that down by the age groups and uh, genders and smell? also race. Um, it's about 60% that uh, at some time that uh, test positive. So it's really uh, quite a, a very strong one. I mean, in our data, it was the strongest predictor of testing positive based on about uh, 20,000 um, positive tests. So that really should be something that they're, you know, everyone's educated from. And, I, you know, I would like to see this in, at the, you know, in hospitals and supermarkets and airports. Uh, this is taken seriously. Perfect. Okay. Going on to our next speaker is Daniel Klein. Daniel joins us from Sweden. Uh, he's a professor of economics at George Mason University. Go ahead, Daniel. Hey, greetings from Sweden. So, first of all, leading epidemiologists here, Giseka and Tegnell, I think had a feeling about this threat, which seems to have turned out to be correct. I think from the start, they felt the lockdown would not be helpful. Perhaps they foresaw that death would not be that widespread and concentrated in the old and frail and would not overwhelm intensive care. Um, Sweden followed their advice and did not lock down and shut down, although it did to some extent, of course, flatten the curve with recommendations for social distancing and the such. And the public never really went in for masks. I haven't seen too many masks at the supermarket and so forth. Uh, one second, uh, Daniel. Tim, uh, is your, uh, could you put your phone on mute? We're getting some feedback. This turned out to be correct. I think from the start, they felt the lockdown was not Should I go on? Okay. Yes, please. I, I should go on. Um, go ahead. Those, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, anyway, um, what I think is most notable about Sweden is that the opinion of some such epidemiologists held sway. Politicians uh, did not jump into lockdown and so on. And that's what Sweden has been famous for. The economy is, of course, suffering badly. About 45% of the uh, output is for the export markets. And as world demand uh, is falling off, they're suffering. Uh, businesses are, like, like everywhere else, going underwater. Um, but some say that the Swedish economy is suffering less badly. And the Swedish economy at least doesn't figure out how to reopen because it never closed. The Swedish government is pouring money into keeping workers officially employed, though furloughed, businesses afloat, and so forth. So in dealing with the economic fallout, Sweden does not particularly represent any kind of exceptionalism, I wouldn't say. It's more in handling the pandemic. On the death toll, 
Um, it's many times that of the Nordic neighbors, but below Belgium, Spain, Italy, UK, and France. 88% of the COVID deaths are 70 and older. And 70% of the deaths are people in elderly care, particularly in the nursing homes. They are especially vulnerable. Uh, there's some specialties here. Maybe it's similar in some other places, but um, admittance depends on need. People have home care options so that they don't, in a sense, graduate to the nursing home until they really need it and are fairly broken down often. Stockholm is somewhat special with its concentration. Um, <clears throat> And I think perhaps also relevant is that the previous flu season was somewhat mild and maybe um, frail people were sort of building up more in the nursing homes. Anyway, we've done a calculation. When I say we, I mean my wife and I. My wife's a sociologist here in Sweden. Um, the life remaining median of those who died in elderly care or in the nursing homes, I should say specifically, the life remaining median, we estimate to be between five and nine months. Uh, so that is to say that when the person died of COVID, um, the median of those such people from the nursing homes would have been about five to nine months more had they not had COVID. Um, nosocomial infection is a big part of the story, but of course, just the sheer special vulnerability so why did Sweden follow the advice of Giseka and Tegnell? And this gets to the underpinnings of Sweden's fairly unique permissive approach. Uh, there's a number of things. Uh, first of all, the lockdown would have been unconstitutional, and they actually like obeyed their constitution, which is kind of a quaint idea. Um, the administrative independence in the country has a very long tradition. So the government in the sense of, you know, the government that the prime minister leads does not just override the administrative agencies. They are trusted to lead the way. And it's not that a crisis team is called in. The trust in Sweden is often noted and I believe is truly very relevant here. This trust goes in in many directions, both people trusting their epidemiologists, their state epidemiologists. It's also the government trusting Swedes to follow the recommendations and so on. There's a you know bipartisan feeling of a need to keep the economy going. There, the sociological concept of a central zone, a kind of people who are and feel responsible for the course of the country kind of is more than just politics, I think is especially functional in Sweden. I could elaborate on that. And I also think that Sweden has a much stronger liberal heritage than people realize. And I mean a kind of original liberal, uh, classical liberal heritage here in particular. It's much more than people realize. And it's much more special to Sweden, I think, than people realize compared to, say, the other Nordics. Uh, and finally, gonna, I think they I'm had gonna, a... Daniel, I'm going to cut you off there. I'll come back to you in the question and answer period. Sure. Um, our next speaker is Jerry Mueller. Uh, he comes to us from the professor of He's a professor of history at Catholic University, and he's the author of The Tyranny of Metrics. Jerry, can you go ahead? Thanks. 
Well, we're all hungry for information, and metrics often seem like the most reliable way of getting that information. And uh, I want to talk about some of the problems with some of the metrics uh, that are at least most widely quoted, not not the ones that specialists use, but the ones that so much of the public uses. So the first has to do with um, the hazards of trying to make generalizations across countries. Uh, And the main issue here is trying to draw conclusions from national metrics of COVID incidents and of COVID death rates. Uh, National incidents, the national metrics probably make some sense in a relatively uh, small country like Israel or Taiwan. But in a country that's as big and as heterogeneous as the United States, uh, national level data, I think, is often of dubious value. So if you look at the incidence of COVID and the death rates in New York City, um, they're much, much higher than almost than, than anywhere else. And if you take out the incidents from New York City and the surrounding areas in New Jersey and Connecticut, uh, the national statistics look radically different. That is to say, those, er- those areas skew the national statistics and the rest, many, most of the rest of the country looks very, um, looks very different. So uh, I think that, first of all, then you have to be very skeptical about the international comparisons that are often made. And when it comes to making policy, uh, it's important to disaggregate policy choices to reflect local conditions rather than trying to derive them from the nation as a whole. So that's the first issue. Secondly, whenever metrics are tied to reward and punishment, there's a danger of gaming the metrics, that is, distorting the metrics in order to produce the desired results. And that's true when it comes to tangible decisions, like whether to open up the economy at a particular point, or to issues of what you might call prestige, like how is one country doing compared to another. And this past week, we've seen two instances that seem to be examples of that, that seem to be examples of that at least. One is the story that broke this week that the CDC, in its reporting on testing, was combining two kinds of tests that are actually very different in their significance, uh, namely the viral tests that tells you that tell you who has COVID at the moment and the antibody tests that tell us who's had it in the past and has recovered from it. Uh, we don't know the motive for this combination. Uh, But it might very well be that the motive was to boost the metric of the number of tests performed, which, for example, President Trump was bragging about. Or to take another example, uh, when the question of opening up the economy of a state is tied to metric indices, there's a temptation for some politicians to try to circumvent the metrics to get the desired result. And that's, that seems to be what's led to measures taken recently by the governor of Florida and some other states to simply silence academics or government officials who are charged with gathering and publicizing the data. It's a kind of extreme gaming of the metrics by shutting down the metrics that you don't like. One last point, and that is how when we come to look back at what's happened, the metrics might very well be deceptive. And the issue that I want to mention is what, what, what I would call the, the self-negating prophecy 
or the paradox of deterrent action. So when predictions are made about negative consequences that are going to happen, and then painful measures are taken to obviate those, uh, those consequences, uh, like shutdowns, and then the measures actually work, and they do obviate the consequences, there's a tendency then to look back in retrospect and declare that the measures were unnecessary, because after all, the course of the problem was not so bad. And that this problem of self-negating prophecies applies in many areas of, pu of public policy. Um, for example, in counterterrorism policy. We've spent a fortune on counterterrorism since 9-11. We haven't had a major uh, terrorist attack in the United States. So some people will conclude, well, all that money was poorly spent because after all, nothing happened. But in fact, it may very well be that nothing happened because of the preventative measures that were taken. And to complicate matters, especially when it comes to looking at what happened with COVID in retrospect, we may not know to what extent the uh, improved numbers, as it were, occurred because of the measures that were taken or for some other reason. So those are three metric issues I think people might want to keep in mind. Thanks, Jerry. Um, our next speaker is Myron Scholes. Myron uh, is my former boss, and he won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Go ahead, Myron. Thank you, Larry. <clears throat> what is time diversification? Burton Malkiel has claimed that the only free lunch in finance is cross-sectional diversification. <clears throat> this has led to the growth of index funds and ETFs and factor investing and the belief that buy and hold strategies dominate risk management strategies. As Milton Friedman, however, told us, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Why, therefore, is cross-sectional diversification a false god? Unfortunately, although it works most of the time, it fails badly at the time of shock when we most need it. With good or bad shocks, all assets tend to move together. For example, all equities domestically and internationally moved together during the COVID-19 drawdowns. It is at these times that the free lunch becomes awfully expensive, as we saw recently. Individual equity volatilities increase, and because diversification is lost, the volatility of portfolio holdings increase dramatically. Focusing on diversifying risk over time to re keep risk closer to target has a greater impact than does the extent of cross-sectional diversification and should, and should command more of our attention than it does. What are the benefits of time diversification? Managing risks over time enhances compound returns. Einstein said that the most powerful force in the universe is compound returns. I agree with him. Compound returns should be the major focus of all of our activities, not only in investing, but in life generally. Compound returns have more dimensions than do average returns. Risks affect compound returns. In the short term, risks are everything. Risk dominates average returns and reduces compound returns. And assuming excess volatility around a target risk level reduces compound returns even more. Experiencing a large loss reduces compound return. The tails of the distribution are most important than are the uh, middle of the distribution. Reducing the bad tail and participating in the uptail enhances compound return. Great investors invest this way. For example, ignoring the risks of the ability of our healthcare system to handle a pandemic and therefore having to shut down the economy created a very large negative tail event that will take many years to recover from. 
relative performance, relative evaluation, or comparison to others misses the importance of compounding and the importance of risk as a result. Unfortunately, we have one run of time. The law of large numbers does not apply. Although the index fund is completely diversified to the benchmark, for it is the benchmark, it is not diversified over time. No one believes that the risks of investing are the same now as they were at the end of 2019. We should refocus our attention to changing risk and investor-consumer and corporate responses to the recognition of changing risks and the effects on compound returns. Innovation occurs when new businesses provide services more quickly, more individualized, and more flexibly than do existing businesses that might face constraints that are binding. The growth of Amazon is one example of all three innovation components. Tesla is is another. With the advent of the pandemic, we read more and more about the benefits of adaptability and resilience. Adaptability is the ability to change quickly to reflect consumer wants and competition, and resilience is being able to handle tail events. They are components of time diversification. This is effectively using option theory to quantify and manage the costs and risks associated with changing distributions and the possible bad outcomes without missing good opportunities. We always face the dilemma of whether to carry an umbrella with the possibility of rain. If we do and it doesn't rain, we incur a cost. If we leave the umbrella at home and it does rain, we incur a cost. Many businesses will not survive because they not, did not build enough flexibility into their business models or they incurred debt and their profits, although realized, were not sustainable under shocks. Understanding how to build more flexibility for individual consumers and savers and for firms generally will become a more central focus. Many lessons have been ignored by not focusing on compound return and time diversification. For example, notice the advantages of reducing the errors in models used by AI, 3D printing, sensors, 5G, and big data. Perfect, Myron. Thank you. Um, I'll come back to the q in a minute. Uh, David Witzer is up next. David is uh, a partner at Blackstone, and he's Global Head of Tactical Opportunities. Go ahead, David. Great. Thanks, Larry. Uh, clearly a much less interesting subject than, uh, than my fellow speakers, but I'll give it a quick shot in terms of what's happening in private equity these days. Um, look, there's very, very little kind of classic control private equity going on um, outside of some add-on acquisitions for existing portfolio companies, which I'll come back to. That said, the debt markets um, went through an incredible period of getting crushed, obviously, in mid to late March uh, with an incredible snapback after the actions of the Fed. And frankly, you know, you can get some level of new debt in the market today for new transactions. We uh, we've recently bid on a situation that's over over five billion dollars purchase price. And we're actually able to get uh, committed leverage from the banks for that particular transaction. That leverage is about 20 percent less than it would have been three months ago, and it's about 250 to 300 basis points more expensive, but it's still there and it's committed. So I think as the trajectory we're on today, which we can debate how long that lasts, I think you will see more and more new transaction uh, leverage come into the market and, and some more of the, of the controlled private equity. So what have, what have folks really been doing in that market? They've really been focused on stressed and, and rescued. Um, from a capital market perspective. And you're even seeing the kind of traditional PE control firms 
move into the more, let's call it the convertible preferreds. You know, you've seen Expedia raise capital in that format, Outfront Media, Airbnb, Norwegian Cruise Lines. So these are the types of businesses and industries where private equity firms have been spending a, uh, a significant amount of time and, and actually putting out capital. The other area which we think is super interesting is the growth equity space. So basically almost no to very little leverage, companies growing organically uh, at a minimum in the double digits, um, tons of uh, white space, and they just need capital to, to accelerate that growth. And, and in many cases, they need the partnership of the more institutional firms to drive those businesses forward. One example uh, that we've just recently done would be Bumble, um, which is a fantastic business um, that we are helping to institutionalize in more ways from a you know, sort of a startup business to a more uh, mature business over time. Um, the next thing I, I thought I'd talk about is, is the need businesses that need additional capital, uh, which is obvious. And I put those businesses into three buckets. The first is where you're trying to be offensive. And that's what I mentioned about uh, add-on acquisitions. So we've invested significant capital in the last two months in a uh, variety of different platforms where we want to be offensive by a competitor. Um, you know, those would be the defense sector where we've put out money, uh, the cell tower industry, where we continue to consolidate across countries um, and within countries. And we think, you know, this is a great time to be offensive with our portfolio companies. Then you get into the, you know, defensive side of the equation. And I split that into two pieces. You know, the, the first is really good businesses that are just having liquidity problems. They might be shut. You know, we've got theme park businesses and we've got casino businesses um, and we've got conference businesses. Um, and these businesses are just obviously shut with no revenue, but they're excellent businesses. So we're going to back those businesses with capital and we'll come out the other side and, you know, our, well, our whole periods will likely be longer. Um, but I don't see a big, I see an acute problem today. I don't see a big problem over time. If you have the capital to back those businesses, the tougher situation is when you have businesses that were struggling, either aren't particularly good businesses or they were already struggling for other reasons before the onset of COVID-19. And, and we certainly have a few of those as well. And, and deciding whether to put capital in those situations is, is very, very difficult. Um, and we've, we've been having to make those decisions, um, you know, during this period of time. And we back certain ones and, and others we might not uh, back into the future. Um, so with that, I think I would turn it over. Larry asked me to talk briefly on professional sports, near and dear to many of our hearts. Um, look, you're starting to see things move, right? So UFC's come back, NASCAR's come back. We're going to see some interesting golf that I think is probably on as we're speaking right now. Um, I personally watched some German Bundesliga soccer. Um, and, you know, the Germans do this very well. Their, their plan to return was incredibly well thought through. And I feel like sometimes other leagues are uh, just spend more time talking to, to Germany about what they've been doing rather than scramble to, to necessarily come up with your own plan, which I think is happening across European soccer leagues. And so Italy's going to reopen their league, the premiership, has been fighting, frankly, about what is going to happen and what it's going to look like. And a big issue in, in Europe, as many of you know, is you have this relegation dynamic. So what happens if you don't play the season and you only play part of the season? And I can't even imagine some of the lawsuits that might occur depending on uh, whether the seasons are finished out or not um, in terms of relegation and promotion in, uh, in Europe. In the U.S., um, you know, I'm pretty familiar with baseball, hockey, and basketball. All three are doing what you would expect them to be doing, which is focusing a lot on the science and spending tons of times with medical professionals. 
um, spending time with authorities, uh, governmental authorities, et cetera, but all with an intention to come back and finish their seasons in a variety of different ways, whether that be play in tournaments to get to the playoffs, go directly to the playoffs, have some warm up games, um, clearly doing these all without fans and doing them with a small number of locations um, or even one location in, in certain circumstances. Um, so I do think there is, a, there is a big focus. I think the leagues are being smart by waiting and continuing to gather more and more information. We all learn a ton more every day, let alone every week. And I think if and when, and I'm hoping it's when, it is appropriately safe to, uh, to open the doors and keep a very small group of players, coaches, um, and officials uh, to be able to play uh, these games. What I think people have not focused on, and then I will be quiet, is everyone's focused on this finishing the season. What a lot of people have not focused on, and I'm not talking the league so much, I'm talking team owners and things of that nature, is what's going to happen in, in the 2021 seasons. Um, these buildings are not going to have fans in them. So my gut is the seasons will start later. Um, hopefully the science will continue to evolve in an extremely positive way. But the idea of fans in seats uh, in the fall seems, um, you know, not on the cards. Eye in the sky? No, it's not there. Okay. A lot of eyes in the sky. David, thank you. Uh, next up is my brother, Ron. Go ahead, Ron. Hi, it's Ron Bernstein. I'm Larry's brother and work in real estate Blackstone. We're the uh, largest owner of real estate in the world. I'll try to give some group, uh, ground, ground floor feedback on what's going on in industry from my vantage point. Any opinions on the public companies that I mentioned are my own, and I have no non-public information. Let's first start with senior housing. We are a large owner of senior housing in the U.S. with 90 buildings and over 7,000 residents who on average are about 83 years old, the population most impacted by the coronavirus. We are the owner and hire third-party licensed operators who run our properties. We own independent living, assisted living, and memory care units. All of our buildings have been on full lockdown for about 11 weeks. No visitors, no tours. The good news is that our operators have, and the vast majority of our fellow operators, have had very few positive coronavirus patients. However, the occupancy rates for the business are in decline and under immense pressure. For context, during the great financial crisis in 08-09, senior housing occupancy declined about 4.5%. And it took five years for the industry to lease back up and recover. Today, publicly traded senior housing companies have announced that they are losing approximately 2% to 3% of occupancy per month. We could see that full marketing and tours could be slowed or banned until there is a vaccine. And when there is one, consumers are still likely to be concerned about health risks of the elderly congregating together and therefore delay a move-in until it is totally necessary. So we could see 10%, 15% occupancy losses or more from COVID. So when does the occupancy return to normal for senior housing post-COVID? Who knows? On a more hopeful note, the big bulge in the senior population that is aging over the next few years is entering the stage where they should seek to enter these senior buildings. And new development of senior housing should be materially decreased given the pandemic overhang and the shutdown in the construction lending markets. However, the public market investor community has completely clobbered the senior housing public companies. While the S&P is now down only about 8% year-to-date, the formerly top senior housing REITs like Ventas and Welltower are still down over 40%. It's a bloodbath, and as a result of nervousness about no move-ins and no true reopening dates and still a potential accelerated move-out due to corona deaths. On the political side, Larry's favorite senator, Senator Warren, opened an inquiry this month regarding the senior housing responsiveness to the pandemic, and she is likely looking for a gotcha type of moment to uncover and chastise poor operators and high caseloads. I think this negativity is misguided. As the large operators are spending heavily to try and reduce the spread of the virus, by requiring masks at all times and hiring extra labor to do things like serving meals in everybody's room. Labor is 60% of the cost structure for these properties, and these increased costs and drops in occupancy will wipe out a major portion of cash flow for the foreseeable future. 
On the other side of the spectrum, the CARES Act, legislation to reimburse and rebate healthcare spend associated with the pandemic, has been passed and allocated to hospitals and nursing homes. Now, the National Senior Housing Associations and large operators are working collaboratively to also seek to receive such federal funds to offset COVID-related losses and the excessively high spend on masks and other protective equipment. Now, I'd like to turn my attention to office. As you know, almost all office tenants are working remotely. How will workers return, and what will office space look like in a post-COVID world? These are difficult questions, and at this point, the answers are really not clear. What is clear is that working from home for a large majority of white-collar jobs is actually working efficiently and smoothly. For context, the big trend over the past 10 years has been urbanization, a migration of workers and companies from the suburbs to the urban core. Large and small employers wanted to be in the great cities of the U.S., like Boston, Cambridge, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, and Seattle, where they could attract and retain an educated workforce who also loved to be in a 24-hour city with great restaurants, public transit, and young people with which to socialize. The modern offices of pre-COVID world were all about high density, packing as many workers as possible on a floor. Once there, they were encouraged to congregate around trendy coffee stations to share ideas and enhance the culture of the company. Gone were the days where every lawyer or VP had their own office, and it was sold as a dual positive. Pack professionals closer together to save money on rent and also improve relationships and creativity in the workplace. Let's look at Manhattan as an example. Over the last 10 years, technology companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon have increased their footprint by over 8 million square feet, a 400% increase. They were new to New York City and entered the marketplace to find engineers and high-octane workers. Older classic financial service companies like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, City, Deutsche Bank contracted by 13 million square feet during the past 10 years. While some of these firms shrank um, because of the Great Recession, these banks now employ about the same number of people as they did in 2010. These firms didn't contract space just because of layoffs. They certainly didn't move to the suburbs. They were able to contract by jamming more people into a denser layout and therefore better utilizing the real estate. Now, in a post-COVID world, after only 10 weeks, we are seeing a new trend, work from home. Twitter and Facebook are saying that employees can work from home permanently, even after the COVID-19 crisis passes. Zuckerberg has said that in five years or so, 50% of his workers could be working remotely. So the new trend taking shape is that tech jobs and other excellent jobs at the finest companies will be open to people living anywhere in the U.S., including those unwilling or unable to move to a big city. The other major trend over the past 10 years has been an explosion in the shared office concept. WeWork, Convene, Industrious, Regis. Have you ever been to a WeWork space? The whole idea was to pack as many people from small companies and startups onto an office floor, make it look cool to share a bench with someone you didn't know, and have free coffee and beer for close socializing and interaction. The shared office model is exactly what you don't want during a pandemic. Reopening these spaces will be incredibly difficult, expensive, and given the short-term nature of the underlying subleases to thousands of small no-credit tenants, a looming disaster for these operating companies who advertise shared office as a service. Ten years ago, these types of firms represented a small 5% of net absorption of space in the U.S. Over the past two years, they've averaged 40 to 50% of all of the net absorption of office space in our country. It's It's astounding. WeWork is the largest tenant in Manhattan with over 8 million square feet of space. It beats its next person, J.P. Morgan, by 3 million feet. These tenants will now shed space, sublease space, or just fail. WeWork was already under tro- in trouble pre-COVID. The latest valuation of the company by its owner, SoftBank, was, was just released at under $5 billion, and this is after a failed IPO just months ago when the price talk was $47 billion. I'm skeptical that these work-from-home trends will be a permanent change for the majority of office users. The virus won't be around forever. When vaccines are available and it's safe to do so, most of us will want to work side-by-side with colleagues. And Park Avenue is still Park Avenue. But office supply is inelastic. 
And in the previous few years, small increases in demand led to major increases in rents. Now demand will decline significantly, and therefore rents are going to go down as a portion of the workforce will work from home, and therefore valuations for office buildings are going down too. And don't forget about all that shadow supply from the sublease market that will explode as failed companies and the WeWorks of the world shed unneeded space. This pandemic will have a major impact on the office market for years to come. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Ron. Um, next up is my good friend Tom Shapiro, a president and founder of GTIS, a real estate company. Go ahead, Tom. Great. Thanks, Larry. We entered, we entered the year believing that the expansion was in the late innings with short-term headwinds ahead. Of course, nobody predicted it'd be a pandemic with the worst employment numbers since the Great Depression. I like to say COVID's the great accelerator of a lot of trends that were already happening. We've been particularly focused on the impact of the shutdown on the job market and the long-term scars that this may leave on the U.S. labor force and the way people will work, sleep, and play. We're being told that 88% of the job losses are temporary, but this is a self-reported designation, and the concern is this is wishful thinking. It normally takes four to five years to make up job losses after a session. It took longer after 08. Small businesses are 47% of private sector employment and nearly half of GDP. How many of our neighborhood restaurants and stores will be able to reopen? What will our cities look like if many of our stores close? How long will it take for us to reopen new businesses to fill all this vacancy? While the unemployment situation is unprecedented, so is the government response. A median household received 1.7 times normal wage with the stimulus check and will receive 1.2 normal pay for 26 weeks. So a median household is now taking in more money staying at home. But of course, this has an end date. August and December are dates to watch. This is the main reason why we're seeing residential collection numbers that have been so high. So there's a lot of risk, and it seems the public markets are ahead of itself, given the government stimulus and pricing in all the positive news on reduced transmissions and vaccine development. We still feel there are opportunities to invest, but we're focused heavily on three themes, dialing down risk and leverage, investing in growth markets where the margin of safety is higher, and being deliberate in investing in asset classes that have long-term secular tailwinds that could grow even in a recession. In growth markets, we've been focusing on the Sun Belt and suburban areas surrounding urban gateways as a great urbanization revitalization story of the past decade comes to an end. Alongside our other strategies, we've been investing in Opportunity Zones, which is a development incentive program created by the Tax and Jobs Act of, 20, of 2017. Capital gains on any assets can be deferred until 2026 and then further reduced by 10%. Furthermore, if you hold the investment for a minimum of 10 years, you pay no capital gains. If you're in a high-tax state, these tax incentives can triple your after-tax profit. This program is all about creating capital appreciation over at least a 10-year period. We've identified locations across the country that are experiencing positive transformative growth that we believe will endure over multiple market cycles where our capital can earn commercial returns and investors can take advantage of the tax incentives while positively bringing investment into communities. In high-yield credit, capital markets saw significant dislocation in March, similar to what David was just saying, until the Fed stepped in with unprecedented liquidity. However, the Fed isn't lending to everyone, so we have a bifurcated market of haves and have-nots. Asset classes such as corporate bonds that benefit from Fed support have seen a strong recovery. If you're a publicly traded home builder, you can issue debt at pretty inexpensive rates. But private developers cannot get the same construction financing proceeds as pre-COVID, and now they need to plug a hole in the capital stack. A lot of deals weren't working prior to COVID, and now they're certainly not working with further delays. Those are the areas we're focusing on, good assets that have been left behind by the liquidity infusion, where we can originate or acquire deep value credit with downside protection at double-digit returns. I'll take you through my view on different real estate asset classes. Hotels are a sector that have been hit hard, 
exceptionally hard globally due to COVID. Realistically, hotel demand will not come back until there's treatment or a vaccine, which means that this could be a prolonged slowdown. However, hotels are cyclically but not sexually challenged. Industrial is the clear winner at the expense of the retail sector. As I mentioned, COVID's the great accelerator. Industrial was already strong due to e-commerce growth and sheltering in place has forced retailers to invest more into their online capabilities. People are buying more on Amazon, but also COVID has forced people to learn to do more online. People are buying groceries online for the first time, getting their prescriptions delivered online. In fact, one of my colleagues leases a new car without stepping a single foot into a dealership. Ron really touched on office. I completely agree with all his thoughts. Um, I, I think office is going to be very, very difficult, particularly in New York City. So let me now move on to residential. We continue to favor single-family rental and sales. Even before COVID, we thought families would want more space, and now that need for space is even greater. However, they may not be able to or may not want to buy a new home when they can rent it, so they will rent single-family homes. We're developing entire communities of single-family rental homes now. For sale, single-family housing has been surprisingly strong and stronger than we expected. We were worried that without, un- with, excuse me, we were worried that with unemployment reaching double digits, consumers would be afraid to purchase. But that has been offset by super low mortgage rates, and shelter-in-place has been the catalyst for prospective buyers to pull the trigger. However, we're closely watching if this is pent-up demand from pre-COVID prospective buyers, which means possibly a slower period until the economy begins to come back. Nationally, collections for multifamily has been decently strong. In our multifamily and single-family rental investments, collections have been running in the high 90s, which are close to normal levels. It seems the government stimulus and unemployment benefits have helped in providing support for people who need it during this health crisis. Also, turnover and lease activity is much lower since people are less willing to move. The New York City condo market is just scary. Unsold Manhattan condo inventory is over 7,000 units out of 23,000 built in the last decade. Brooklyn added 20,000 condo units. That's over a six-year supply during normal times without including the thousands of units still under construction and the fact that sales are and will be anemic for some time. A super luxury market over $10 million has almost 1,000 new units. Quarter one sales of over $10 million units were eight units. The best year ever for 10 million up sales was in 2006 when 250 units sold. Typically, we sell around 120 to 150 $10 million and up units. So as you can see, absorption will take forever to get rid of these units. Super luxury overbuilding like this happened during the 1920s when large mansions were built for the wealthy. In the 1930s and 1940s, they were chopped up into apartments when the city raised taxes. I wonder if we'll see a similar phenomenon now. Thanks, Larry. Oh, that's great. Okay. Uh, our next speaker is Pamela Prickett. Uh, she's a professor of sociology at the University of Amsterdam, and she's going to speak to us about the unclaimed dead. Go ahead, Pamela. Thank you, Larry, and thanks to all of you for listening. Um, I'm going to say get ready for a shift, and not just because I'm the only woman's voice you'll hear. I am a social scientist and an ethnographer. I'm driven by a desire to understand other people's stories, to cultivate research-driven empathy. And at the moment, I'm writing a book that traces the stories of people who go unclaimed after death, people with no one willing or able to bury them. During COVID, I've been paying special attention to who is dying, as well as the ruptures the pandemic creates in how we mourn. And like a lot of things with COVID, I think the pandemic has exposed issues and problems we were already living with, like rising inequality and political polarization. What I hope, and I'll come back to this again uh, a little bit later, is that the pandemic offers a chance to reckon with where we want to head next. 
So back in April, when New York City faced its peak in COVID fatalities, there were a number of news stories about the possibility of people being buried in mass graves or interred in public parks. People were horrified at the idea. Uh, The mayor had to assure the public that every person's body would be treated with dignity. In truth, thousands of Americans are buried in mass graves or on public land every year. They are our country's unclaimed dead, and through a patchwork of local policies, the unclaimed are buried at mass or cremated, their ashes either buried or scattered at sea. In rural areas hit hard by the opioid epidemic, ashes can languish for years in the desk drawer or office closet of a local county sheriff. New York City's Potter's Field is on the uninhabited and rather bleak Heart Island, where burials are now taking place for victims of the coronavirus out of public view. Before COVID, New York buried about 25 people a week on the island. In April, it was 25 per day. The island is managed by the Department of Corrections, and until the pandemic, the burial is handled by inmates from Rikers. The dead are placed in plain pine coffins and laid in trenches. There are no gravestones, just small white markers. And it's that anonymity that tugs at so many of us. The unclaimed are a mystery. They raise existential questions about the meaning of life. You know, one measure of how human lives matter is based on what we meant to others when we pass away, how much they will miss us. The unclaimed confront us with the brutal fact that some lives don't seem to matter. And yet, the unclaimed touch people. They touch us. And I know because I've been studying the unclaimed dead for nearly five years, focusing on L.A., where every day around five people go die, uh, people die and go unclaimed. And this was before COVID. In L.A., unclaimed bodies are held for ni- uh, 30 days, then cremated and their ashes stored for three years. Just in case a family member decides to step forward, though they rarely do. After three years, the ashes are buried in a common grave during an interfaith ceremony held every December at a public cemetery in Boyle Heights. No names on the headstone, just a single marker the size of a postcard with the year of death. The mass grave like this has a special gravity, and it's what drew me to this study. There are stories buried in those mass graves that haven't been told stories about some of the loneliest and most forgotten members of our society. So who are the unclaimed? Well, like the victims of COVID, the unclaimed tend to be poor or low income. They often die in nursing homes and other care facilities or at home with no one to notice until a neighbor reports an odor or a worried friend asks for a welfare check. Many were homeless and struggling with addiction. But it isn't just the indigent who go unclaimed. In L.A., we find that there are another 200 or so veterans who are unclaimed every year. Because of a state law banning the burial of veterans in Potter's Fields, these unclaimed vets are buried at Riverside National Cemetery. Their funerals attended by volunteers, but no family. And another 60 or so people in L.A. who have assets above 50000 receive individual private funerals with only the cemetery workers present. The reasons people end up unclaimed vary. They may have outlived their relatives and may be struggling financially and the cost of disposition too high. Or in the saddest cases, brothers, sisters, children, or parents didn't want anything to do with the deceased. When it comes to death, family matters. Friends really don't claim friends. Often the unclaimed lived vulnerable, isolated lives, drug use, and mental illness are prominent risk factors, as is gender. Men are at greater risk of going unclaimed with the twin factors of divorce and living alone, making them more vulnerable to social isolation. And this is part of why the unclaimed matter. They invite us to think about the living, 
the vulnerable living among us, people who are excluded or forgotten pieces of our social fabric. And there's another reason I want to nudge you to care about the unclaimed, and that's in seeing the beauty in collectively mourning them. Think about the bleak, controversial, and off-limits Heart Island, which the New York Times describes as a place you don't want to end up, where death is, quote, efficient and unsentimental. And compare that to L.A., where every year several hundred people from across the city come together to mark the deaths of the unclaimed in an interfaith ceremony. It's a dignified event, with clergy leading prayers and reading poems. There's a string quartet and a Native American sage blessing. It's respectful not morbid, the ceremony shores up our sense of what community means, giving those who are largely invisible one last sign of recognition. And it reminds us of the fragility of life. You know, it could be any one of us in that common grave. It only takes one economic downturn or one big family fight. The ceremony is a marker for the living, no less than for the dead. This is what rituals do. They bring us together and they remind us what matters. So we don't know yet how many COVID-19 victims will go unclaimed, but we know that rates of unclaimed rise during and after recessions. Funerals cost a lot of money. Caring for the unclaimed dead of COVID and beyond, as the LA ceremony does, shows that we can redeem some bad endings. The unclaimed teach us that we can grieve without being personally collected to the deceased. We can mourn someone who is different from us. What we mourn is lives cut short and grieving affirms these lives. This kind of grief, we believe, can connect people. Thank you. Super, thanks. Um, quick question for you. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned that there's a 7x increase in the number of uh, unclaimed bodies at Hart Island in New York City from 25 a week to 25 a day. Um, do you think that's just a function of the rising death rate? Or do you think it's a function of something very specific to COVID and COVID-related deaths? I think it's, it's both, right? So we have thousands of excess deaths. So that's going to amplify certain factors that we already see with death. And then you also find that the people who are dying from COVID also seem to, to map very closely onto the people who go unclaimed. So people who are living alone in nursing homes in particular, um, the vulnerable from poverty, um, living in neighborhoods that don't have as good of health care. So in that sense, they tend to be quite similar. And the, there's a process, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, and so we have a process of what happens when someone dies. You have to be buried in a certain number of days. There's a funeral, uh, and then we have a shiva, and then we have a certain amount of time where we're supposed to uh, end our mourning period. And then we have a religious annually and, and so on. I'm wondering... Um, I've heard from my friends who've, whose parents have died and they've gone, and they can't have the funeral, or the funeral is extremely limited only to a handful of people um, because of the risk associated with it. Do you think that maybe the, the disruption um, that we had to our current uh, social mores of death and mourning reflect potentially the reason for the greater uh, unclaimed bodies? Sorry, so you're asking if the disruptions to the ability to mourn the way we, we've tended to mourn? No, we can't have um, the funerals we have. We can't have shivas. Yeah, you know, that doesn't seem to be the case based on what I'm seeing. It, you know, it tends to be that people who are able to afford and who have the interest in claiming their loved ones are working around this and finding ways to do kind of more creative and alternative approaches to, to burials and funerals. Um, 
you know, what I think is really interesting about thinking about unclaimed in the relation to COVID is that, you know, the world is kind of going through this collective trauma. There are thousands of excess, excess deaths, and we are, many of us, isolated in our mourning. And it's not just about the individual families, right? But we need to come to terms with these mass deaths. And so we want to think about scripts for grieving collectively, thinking about why it matters to mourn people who we didn't know, okay? And if you looked at the, the cover of the New York Times today and you see, you know, printing the names of, of, of the, everybody who's died from COVID, I mean, there's this kind of collective sense that we need to bring attention and we need to, to humanize and personalize these stories and really make sense of it. And I think what we're going to see is, is society trying to come to terms with that and trying to find a way um, and we think that, you know, looking at the unclaimed who are kind of the most forgotten and abandoned and how communities like Los Angeles come together to do that provides a, a roadmap for thinking about that. But I'm sure there's other ways that cities um, and counties can come together and do that. And just uh, one final question for you. Uh, to distinguish between, let's say, memory and the body um, is the nature of my question. And here, here I'll go for it. Um, in the Vietnam War Memorial, we have a list of all the names of the servicemen who died. Um, and the New York Times had its 100,000. But um, it's different for a name and a memory than it is to thinking about the body. Um, you know, certain religions have different views on the importance of a dead body versus or not. How should we think, and maybe are there changing social mores as it relates to um, memory and the body itself? That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting for me in our research across these five years is realizing that, yes, that there will be times in which a family or friends don't claim a body, but that doesn't mean that somebody goes unmourned, okay? So there are times in which it makes sense to, to um, you know, think about rituals and, as you say, naming recognitions and possibilities for um, giving giving memory to people, and it may not be necessary to always have the body. And that is something that we're beginning to think about and explore and kind of get people to just ask those questions. I'm not sure that we have an, an answer that we want to give people, but we do want to start having a conversation around these issues because, you know, before COVID, um, maybe there wasn't as much public conversation around us. Okay. Uh, Tim Spector, are you still on the line? Yeah, I am. Great. Um, where do you think we take um, your app next? Do you just think of it as a, a geographical phenomena, or are you thinking that maybe we can use it um, in businesses, in retail, uh, at sporting events? How, how do we how do we take this to the next level? Um, I think there's a number of ways it can be used. I mean, clearly we've shown that you can get something simple out there very fast and in, do things in real time and interact with people. Um, and a lot of it has been the interaction rather than as a one-way device that's made it work. Um, we've added extra questions every couple of days and fed back to people, which I think is different to a lot of the apps that don't do that. Um, and so I think it could be rolled out to, um, you know, obviously I was thinking more up, altruistically in terms of, you know, African countries and things that who couldn't afford to uh, do this, but a lot of them have mobile phones. 
but um, you could you could well do it at you know in the armed forces. Um, you could do it, as you said, in sporting events. Uh, people have been to them and just send them a special text and say, "How are you feeling?" You know, a few days after it. Um, uh, I, I think the other thing is we're, we're doing real-time research, so um, we ask people what questions they've got, and we had a question about uh, hormone replacement therapy, uh, ERT, um, and, and you know, within four days we had a question up there, and one and a half million uh, women had answered it. And so you're getting very much this amazing feedback loop between people wanting to know answers to things. And um, that's... Tim, we, do we lose you? All right, we'll, we'll come back to Tim in a minute. Eric, uh, Tobel, when you, um, you heard Tim's use of this app, and in contrasting it with your um, your app that goes more of a Fitbit, you know, something around your arm that takes temperatures and uses heart rate. Could you can you think of how you would use your app in conjunction with Tim's? Right. Well, our app is resting heart rate. Uh, it doesn't get temperature because that doesn't come from the wrist passively, unobtrusively. Uh, now we also do have a symptom checker uh, as part of the app. Uh, for those who want to register their symptoms and they're asked on a daily basis. <clears throat> I think these are orthogonal. These, these are complementary ways to get at an outbreak. So if you could get all these things, uh, and now the watches are starting to uh, open up for oximetry, as was previously discussed. So you could even monitor uh, at scale because uh, Fitbit and Samsung and Apple are all going to have pulse oximetry on their smartwatch. In fact, it's embedded, but they just hadn't activated it. So the more data you can have, the deeper data per person gives a much better ability to uh, detect a cluster. And, you know, I've seen people with that yellow band for a long time, and I imagine it's aged or it doesn't have the technology that you're looking for. Um, and I know there's tons of smartwatches. Have they? Do they continue to work? Do they depreciate dramatically in terms of their quality? Um, do we need to get everyone has to get new equipment? What is your thought on that? No, no. The, the, the heart rate has been the one thing that's held up really well, and especially since you don't have to rely on any given individual. So no, they're great for that. A lot of people, you know, they need to dust it off because they put it away and. Um, this is the so-called fit quit instead of staying with it. A lot of uh, companies gave it to all their employees, but no, these, these are great ways to get a quick uh, passive uh, large scale data collection that will help and complement the one that we ultimately do need to have, which is uh, massive uh, and frequent testing. Okay. My next question is for Richard. Richard, um, you spoke about using oxygen uh, to determine when to go to the hospital. And so it seems to me what you're recommending is um, dramatically increasing the number of hospitalizations, but trying to keep the amount of time in the hospital to a minimum. Um, why is it so important to get to the hospital, and what will the hospital actually do for you when you get there so that you can get head home uh, and reduce mortality and co comorbidities? 
Right. Well, looking back at, you know, what happened in New York, basically it wasn't just this pandemic spike. It was the fact that essentially almost all patients presented with moderate to severe pneumonia, which led to a lot of need for mechanical ventilation. And what people need to understand is the length of hospitalizations in people who get intubated is extraordinarily long. One out of five people in HHC hospitals who were intubated required to be on a ventilator more than 21 days. Um, The average length of stay was on the order of 10 to 14 days. So the whole game in COVID is not only to reduce mortality by preventing mechanical ventilation, but I mean, it's really to identify injury earlier and therefore reduce all the complications that follow when you present with severe lung injury. And the oximeter basically just tells us when early lung injury has occurred. It's the earliest biomarker. Uh, You know, Dr. Topol talks about heart rate as an early biomarker of viral infection. Of COVID pneumonia, the earliest biomarker, and the one that was most significant uh, in many studies, NYU included, uh, of large data sets of COVID patients, the most the biggest predictor of um, ICU admission, uh, mechanical ventilation, and death was the level of lung injury estimated by pulse oximetry on presentation. So earlier use of pulse oximetry, what it does is it allows identification of early lung injury. The patients come into the system earlier, you measure biomarkers, you start treating them with oxygen. And what that does is it decreases the work of breathing. There is, you interrupt this negative cycle of increasing inflammation, increasing work of breathing, further lung injury that leads to mechanical ventilation and often high mortality. So I think, you know, there is the potential, as you say, if we monitor everybody who has COVID tested positive, and I believe also in elder care facilities and high-risk groups, meatpacking plants, et cetera, but if you monitor people where we know there are outbreaks where there's high rates of infection, Uh, and you identify early pneumonia, you bring them into the hospital earlier, their hospitalizations are going to be briefer. You're going to be able to keep a lot of people off ventilators. A few people, unfortunately, will go on to these hyperinflammatory states, need other interventions, but we're getting better at them, the IL-6 inhibitors, the steroids, and other agents. So in general, I think as we move the entire process of this to earlier detection and earlier treatment, we're going to do better. We're going to have less long hospitalizations and hopefully significantly less death as well. So um, do you have a feeling about what the death rate actually is? And then where do you think we're going now that we have this, uh, call it superior treatment model? Um, Well, you know, I don't think there is a number. People want a number, but the reality, as multiple participants have pointed out, is it's very much dependent on age and comorbidities. The people that clearly, you know, greatest risk for this illness are people who uh, are not upright, moving, expanding their lower lungs and their posterior lungs the most, namely people who lay flat on the back with limited mobility, the elderly in these elderly care facilities um, are at highest risk, and they do poorly in this disease. When you start looking at people who are under the age of 60 who are not with significant comorbidities, the actual death rate is really, really low. Um, so when you you know, try to get at a number as uh, I forget who was talking about metrics, you're confounding everything, and it really is kind of irrelevant, but in the sense that it doesn't give you 
um, meaningful data because you're co-mingling all of these different people with different risks. But um, thankfully, although it has been in the news tremendously about all the children, uh, the percentage of people who are young, and I'm using under 60 as young since I'm getting into that age group, uh, the percentage of death is really, really low. And I want to talk about your uh, the new prone method that you've adopted. Um, wh- why do you think it it significantly decreases the amount of uh, lung problems, scarring, tension, whatever is going on? What, can you explain what, like what what's happening? Why the prone is different, and why it yeah. improves the results? So. Um, you know, I spent 30 years doing emergency medicine. The number of people who I would see with, um, you know, severe lung injury uh, was very low. These are people who survived drowning with terrible multi-lobe pneumonias. The ICUs would see these cases, but we wouldn't see very many of them all at once. The amazing thing about COVID was suddenly, you know, Bellevue went from 40 beds to 150-plus beds, and everybody had this severe uh, advanced respiratory distress syndrome, the severe multilobar pneumonia. So it turns out that for many years we've known, uh, actually, a fellow by the name of Gattinoni, who has done a lot of the work on the pathophysiology of COVID, uh, about 2002 or so, he described the benefit of proning in these ICU patients who were intubated with this severe um, ARDS syndrome. And the reason why it works, and this is just biologically evident when you look at the fastest animals on the planet, um, when you turn over from laying on your back to laying on your stomach, your heart goes from being up top to being on your sternum, being at the bottom. And you aerate, you open up more of the posterior and lower lungs in a prone position. And that's the, volu- that's the largest sort of volume of the lung. So turning people who have terrible, uh, severe, advanced multilobar pneumonia onto their stomach helps improve oxygenation. So we knew that in intubated patients with ARDS. Um, what had not been done, there were only a few preliminary studies, was the use of awake proning, namely in people who aren't hooked up to ventilators, who don't have breathing tubes. And it began to be done in New York City out of need. Uh, you know, I'd be working a shift at Bellevue, and we had 15 beds uh, intubated in one unit of the emergency department. And, you know, every 20 to 30 minutes, somebody else would show up with a pulse ox of 50%. And we'd call for a ventilator, and it might come in two hours. The respiratory therapists were running around, uh, you know, way over um, uh, stressed in terms of trying to deliver care. And the entire system was just... Uh, you know, breaking under this weight of patients who needed this high level of care. And what we discovered was that we could turn people onto their stomach, put them on oxygen, prone them, and they would do much better, and we could get their oxygenation up. And two out of three of them, we found out, could avoid intubation altogether. But the problem with proning is that it's okay if you're skinny. (laughs) If you are a large person, it is hard to lay on your stomach uh, and feel comfortable. And so I actually started experimenting with pregnancy massage mattresses. And I had one overnighted uh, to me from a company in California. And it worked incredibly well. I started proning large people as well as skinny people. And I think in the future, we're gonna actually 
kind of modify our entire treatment to facilitate non-invasive ventilation, things like high-flow nasal cannula, negative pressure rooms in hospitals so they suck all the virus out, because that was another concern we had about using these nasal cannulas instead of intubating everybody, which creates a closed circuit. But uh, we're going to, I think, emphasize proning cushions, uh, negative pressure ventilation rooms, and high-flow nasal cannulas. And so I ended up creating a charity, actually, with my brothers, and we started shipping these proning cushions free of charge to clinicians, uh, and the organization is called ProneToHelp.org, ProneToHelp.org, and we've shipped out 600 cushions to 40 states um, at over 200-plus hospitals around the country. But I think we're going to see more and more tailored practices as we go into round two of COVID in this coming winter with an emphasis on trying to avoid mechanical ventilation, trying to do earlier detection, more aggressive anti-inflammatory treatments. And I believe that the backhand of this, the backhand story of this, not only as Dr. Topol points out, I don't think the testing per se is the answer. I think it's the uh, earlier identification of symptoms, earlier identification of illness, even without testing, and then earlier identification of COVID pneumonia with less mechanical ventilation. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, my next question is for Daniel Klein. Daniel, um, in Jerry uh, Mueller's discussion, he mentioned that the United States is not like one country, uh, but it's very different in each locality. Um, and that reminds me of maybe some of the uniqueness of Sweden itself. Um, you know, unique, it's, it's obviously it's wealthy, um, it's white, it has a certain culture. Um, you, you said it was classically liberal at heart, um, but do you think that, that means that you don't have to quarantine as much or at all because um, they will behave themselves, they will socially and physically distance themselves naturally if told to do so? Uh, is that part of it? On the other hand, I often see pictures in Sweden of large congregations and gatherings at bars, uh, which would suggest otherwise. Um, so my first question is, is, is there anything unique culturally to the Swedes that has applicability to some localities in the United States, but maybe not to others? Um, I do think there's stuff that's fairly unique uh, or exemplary in Swedes. I do think they will um, social distance and so forth more responsibly. I think they generally do things more responsibly, I have to say. Um, however, I don't, I don't, therefore think that elsewhere ought to be mandating so much. Uh, I do think that people can be educated and uh, led to do the things that are apt. I mean, like one of the previous speakers was, was just saying, it's so much mainly the elderly with comorbidities. They are the ones we have to protect. I don't think that means, you know, the rest of us have to be forced to do something to protect them particularly. I just think we need to understand that the people with contact to them need to do all the things they need to do and they themselves and their families. Um, so I think Sweden's approach is the right one and it might work especially well in Sweden, but I'm inclined to recommend it for the United States and elsewhere as well. Um, one of the things that we expected from the Swedish experience, because it wasn't quarantined, we expected their economy to be doing quite well, you know, maybe not trend, but maybe a little bit below trend. Um, 
But we've been hearing economic reports that the Swedish economy is doing particularly poorly um, and not as expected. What are you hearing about the Swedish economy, um, and do you think it just relates to some of the global factors of a global recession? That's right. I think it's global. As I said, about 45% of the product is export normally. And also what we were just saying is that people have been not going to work. People have not been doing things. So the economy is crashing as well. It's just not crashing sort of by government order. Oh, that's really interesting. So if it's, are you suggesting that Let's imagine that the United States, for example, would terminate all of its lockdowns. Is your expectation, therefore, that so what? No one will go to work anyway because they're still scared? Um, and it, there's literally it's a sociological problem and not so much a political or uh, central command power down situation? It, it would be less, and people would make their choices on very particular conditions and opportunities and needs, which is, I think, appropriate. Um, I think now people are opening up more. I think people are learning better that most people don't have that much to worry about, particularly if they're not living with an elderly person and so on. Um, so I, I think people would open up more. Uh, but in the beginning, I mean, everybody was sheltering in place. Um, and I think I do think uh, behavior is adjusting now. That's my feeling. Okay. Jerry, a question for you. Um, you know, I, I totally, 30 years ago, uh, in my business, everyone focused on net income. And then the credit market started focusing on EBITDA. And people manipulated net income and didn't manipulate EBITDA, and therefore it was a very good estimator for a quality of valuation purposes. Uh, today, EBITDA is used by almost everyone, and, and, the, and the system is gamed. Uh, that metric is no longer as valuable as it once was. What do you think the kind of metrics um, bring this to COVID-19? What do you think is going to get gamed in the future, and what are the objectives going to be? Do you think, for example, um, employers will manipulate the metrics at work to make COVID-19 look uh, less problematic? Will nursing homes somehow change the metrics to prevent litigation? How do you think what met so my question is in two parts, what are the key COVID-19 metrics going to be and will, and how and who will game them? Uh, I think as a general rule, whenever the metrics involve reward and punishment, either uh, reputational reward and punishment or actually fiscal or financial reward and punishment, there's going to be incentives for those who have money or reputation at stake to to game them, to uh, either to under-report things or to um, uh, or in some other way, uh, present uh, metrics that are that are distortive, um, and I think it will happen in all sorts of areas. Some uh, those are the two cases that you mentioned in terms of uh, in terms of uh, nursing homes and so on. Um, those are you know very likely ones. Then there's other kinds of metrics that will be distorted for other reasons. Uh, today I was talking to a uh, uh, prosecuting a, to a, a government a, a government attorney um, who was uh, prosecuting attorney who was saying that uh, 
crime reports are down in his area, but he knows as a fact that a good deal of that is because police are simply not dealing with and hence not reporting a lot of minor crimes that are actually occurring. So I think you're going to see a, a metric of uh, declining crime and it may actually not, it may be true, but it may actually not be true. It may have more to do with what incentives people have to, uh, to actually deal with that and do the reporting. But so I think in general, in answer to your question, um, whenever one sees these kinds of metrics and there's, uh, as I say, money or honor or reputation at stake, uh, one should be skeptical. Thanks, Jerry. Myron, um, my question for you. Um, what are the implications of time diversification in the context of portfolio management right now? Obviously, um, the VIX is very high. There's a lot of risk as relates to the pandemic itself and how it will play out. Does that mean that um, you would encourage people to reduce their equity exposure right now uh, for fear of the unknown, specifically related to the idiosyncratic risk related to COVID? Well, not necessarily. When I originally gave a talk a long time on the first one of the first few sessions of your uh, Sunday meetings, um, you know, I talked about that time that the option market, which is a market price, so it's not as gamed as much. It can't be gamed if you trade in markets. At least you have information about what people are putting their money on the line or not putting their money on the line. And so, but that tended to indicate quite a amount of downside risk in the market and not much upside potential. And then we've had this unanticipated and completely new information with regard to the advent of the central bankers and then the federal stimulus programs and support programs for the economy, which obviously are multiples of um, of what um, possibly anyone expected at the time and faster than anyone expected. And then the um, even although the uh, the VIX, as you note, is higher now than it was then, it's come down quite dramatically. And, you know, within the range of downside or upside risk, it's uh, getting more to a neutral uh, spot. So, and, you know, the uh, the d distribution of returns going forward, at least in the equity markets, has been, you know, somewhat um, uh, more symmetric and uh, closer to being neutral. So things are still elevated in risk, but basically not to the extent that they were when I gave my talk at the start of the uh, your conference series. So for sure. So what um, if you were, let's say, um, someone normally with 60% equities, 40% debt in the current environment, but there is this very high idiosyncratic COVID risk, would you on the margin decrease your equity exposure, increase it, and how would you think about the problem? Well, depending on where my portfolio was and what I was holding, I would um, you know, decrease to some extent, but not too far different from the 60-40 at this time. Okay. Uh, David Blitzer. Um, you mentioned that, to your surprise, the corporate bond market um, and the public, uh, I should say the private bank loan market, is open. Um, you mentioned that leverage was uh, reduced by 20%, but spreads were 250 wider, um, and that you were, you, you were doing new deals. Um, we have interest rates that come down a lot as well. How do you think about this the fact that, first of all, that it, are you very surprised that the debt market is open at all, and with these much wider spreads, do deals make as much sense, or have equity values come down in the public market so much that 
you know, putting leverage on at these levels makes sense. No, look, I, first off, the market is open a smidge. It's, it's, you know, new debt market is not open, you know, dramatically. Although again, we've had some interesting uh, up moves over the past couple of weeks, but I think values, people are not willing to sell. Private companies are not willing to sell at today's values. You can price the lower debt and the higher spread. And that's just a, you know, that's just a cost of capital question. Um, and you're either going to lower your price or you're going to lower your cost of equity. Um, I don't think people should be lowering their cost of equity, which means lower prices. And I think people are just not prepared to transact generally. So it's really the action is where there are just acute liquidity needs. Um, and again, sometimes those acute liquidity needs are highly defensive and sometimes they can be offensive. So we've had many discussions with people who want to go on offense with their various companies and are looking for capital to help them uh, go on offense. And then the second issue is that a lot of deals that were started in the private market ended in the public market. Markets moved so dramatically that a lot of things that people were working on at much higher costs of capital ended up being able to get ultimately done in the public markets at much lower costs of capital. And you mentioned um, these convertible preferred deals. You mentioned Expedia, Airbnb. Um, you know, it, in previous res- heavy, uh, significant recessions, Warren Buffett always showed up with five or ten billion bucks in a convertible preferred form, with a ten percent coupon and a twenty percent conversion premium. Um, yep. Is that something that is going to become more widespread, or is that reflect some sort of desperation of the lows? No, well, I think everyone's looking for that. They're looking for the Warren Buffett trade of 2008-9, including Warren Buffett. Um, and as he said quite clearly, he's not finding it. And I tend to agree with them. Um, and we found a few things here and there that are interesting. But ultimately, the, the, the high distress uh, in the markets was those kinds of two weeks in March. And beyond that, things started to get done much more effectively. Again, predominantly driven by the Fed. But there's also just, let's not forget, there's a ton of private capital uh, waiting to be put to work. Everyone's running around raising dislocation funds when there's actually not that many transactions to put them out into. And there's a little bit of FOMO going on. And, um, you know, people want to actually have activity, talk to their investors about interesting things that they're doing, et cetera. And we've just said we have done some interesting things on offense. Um, Obviously, we're dealing with some defense, but we're just going to wait. The need for capital into these companies uh, across the globe over the next one, three, six, 12 months is going to be there. Um, and so we're happy to just be patient and, and certainly not reduce our cost of capital. We can debate how much to increase our cost of capital. And I have an unfair question because we have got two real estate guys coming right after you, but um, you mentioned casino, theme parks, conference places, um, and hotels is obviously one of them. Uh, hotels are going to be very difficult to uh, put people into in the next until this vaccine happens. Um, but these assets are, you know, 30, 50 year assets. Um, how, how would you feel about putting money into hotels now, um, given the I'll call it near term troubles? Well, I, I think the next two speakers probably have a better sense of that than me. But look, we, we would certainly invest in hotels for the reasons you just described. Um, fantastic properties looked at over a very long period of time. It's just a matter of getting through the liquidity crunch, right? And we can debate whether that's three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months, okay? Um, So take an extreme case. You can't underwrite that. 
Um, I personally was surprised at the cruise industry and some of the bookings already starting back up for August and September. That'd probably be the last place in the world I would ever go is onto a cruise. And the cruise you know, companies were able to raise capital, et cetera. So I put that in the context of a hotel. I would much rather own um, a, a beautiful hotel, uh, accepting that I'm going to bleed money for some reasonable period of time than to own a cruise ship. So I think you know, for the right properties, certainly just be conservative on your underwriting in terms of what it takes to get through um, and invest for the long term. Thanks. Ron, um, you talked about the debacle of New York City office Tell me a little bit about suburban office. Is that dead? Yeah, I think suburban office is already going really backwards pre-COVID. Um, again, people were were more interested in in hiring the talent that was in the, the urban centers, um, and we had seen suburban office just going the wrong way for many many years. And I think what work from home is showing you is that that's now the suburban office is your is your den and your and your and your you know your your home office is really the new suburban office. Yeah. Um, and how long will it take to get new office construction? Do you think that's just dead in the water for a decade? I don't know about that. I mean, I mean, unfortunately, when you build these buildings, you know they're really big and they're complicated. And once you start them, it's really hard to stop them. So you know, you look at Hudson Yards. I mean, those buildings are going up, and um, a lot of them have you know, first-class companies already pre-leased. Um, but a lot of it is, is kind of a, a shifting game. You know, like KKR is moving out of, um, you know, a building that's considered one of the great buildings in New York, and they're moving over to Hudson Yards. And BlackRock's moving um, from Park Avenue and other great buildings over to Hudson Yards. Um, and Pfizer's moving from 42nd Street over to Hudson Yards. So a lot of those buildings um, are going to have great tenants, but they're leaving holes behind. And um, plus, there's so much new development in Hudson Yards, there's going to be a lot of vacancy there. And those buildings, you just can't stop once you start them. So I think you're probably not going to see a lot of new development. I think in almost every asset class, it's really going to be, you know, shuttered or slowed down. And I think that the capital markets are just closed right now to any construction financing unless unless you got it 100% leased to Amazon or something. It's going to be really hard to get any construction financing. Uh, next question goes back to your assisted living discussion. Um, you mentioned that you've had a tremendous success as of other major operators um, to limiting um, death in, the, in these facilities. Whose responsibility is it really to manage this process? Uh, is it the private entrepreneurs and operators? Should it be the state? Who should be responsible for figuring out um, best practices in this environment for that? Well, the 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 operators that and we have like 13 different third-party operators that manage our our 90 properties um they're all licensed they're all um you know regulated by by the different municipalities in which they operate and and those governmental entities visit the properties all the time and make sure that they're following the pro, pro, you know procedures and protocols that are that are in place these buildings are used to I mean, they are healthcare facilities. They're used to providing healthcare. They, they, you know, they, they know what cleanliness is. Unlike, you know, uh, a Class B office building, which has never really thought about it. Um, and those, and these buildings, um, you know, the 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 municipalities and the government regulations have been dialed up as a part of this. 
And that's why, you know, there's been a shutdown in terms of like anybody really visiting. Um, you still have workers that have to go home. There's workers that have families and kids and they have to go home. And then they have to come back in the morning. So unfortunately there is, you know, some cross contamination for lack of a better word. And there is, uh, you know, a bunch of cases and there will be deaths and there will be more deaths. But um, I think by being so shut down, trying to be so clean, taking all these precautions, um, you know, the industry's you know, done a pretty, pretty good job. Tom, uh, Tom Shapiro, question for you regarding residential. Uh, my first question is uh, suburban versus urban. Uh, it seemed to me that over the last decade or so, or maybe even longer, there's been a huge trend out of suburbs uh, into urban environments. Um, if you look at the New York City MSA, um, New Jersey suburban has been doing particularly poorly. Um, Greenwich, Connecticut, has, and not done well as as other areas of Westchester, um, and people were moving into the city, and I think that's what created, um, as you described it, all these new condo developments in both Brooklyn and Manhattan. Um, do you really think that people are going to just get up and leave and, and head out to the burbs? Um, what what, what so, is going to happen? Yeah, so so a couple couple of phenomena. Well, let's start with the families. I think a lot of people now realize space is a premium. I think people will rethink how houses are constructed. For so for new construction houses, obviously, and, and as Ron spoke about too, is we're going to see more home offices, more people working from home. So I think the the sort of configuration and design of homes are going to be different. But I do think we're going to see people out of the cities. Um, now and I think it's going to be a trend that's going to that's going to we're going to, we're going to see that that urbanization trend reverse a bit. You know, the one thing I think we have to look at though is household formations. So we generally produce about 1.2 million households a year. Um, that's you know people moving out from college. That's you know roommates breaking up and that creates anything anything like that creates a household. After 08, that those numbers went down to six, seven hundred thousand a year, um, and then of course you had a massive amount of supply, and that really decimated the markets, and that's why we had this tremendous housing crash before. So I think one of the real questions is, you know, expect back to the job picture is, is who, who are people going to have jobs? Um, and so we we think you know one of the big trends is premium for space, but people. What I was saying before is I think a lot of people will want to rent those homes and not necessarily buy those homes, um, because I think the the notion that our parents and our grandparents that a lot of their wealth was just created by making one great decision, which was to buy a house in their 20s or 30s and then hold that house for, for 40 years, um, and that created their wealth. I, I think a lot of people, especially who watch what happened in 08, and frankly, a lot of markets really hasn't been a lot of appreciation, are, are going to think twice about it. But I, I do think we're going to see people think twice about being in the cities and be able to, to move out. And also, we have to check, too, what What's going to happen with the office market? Are, are office are people going to be able to work from home? But also, are some is there going to be a de-densification and moving out of some of the larger cities and into the suburbs too? If the companies move out too, then people will move out because of the because of the commute. Um, next question for you. Um, so there are when your college kid graduates and heads into this urban environment, uh, he generally gets or she she gets. Uh, two choices: she can have like four roommates uh, in this little apartment, or she, he, or she can get this incredibly tiny micro apartment. Um, I've noticed that um, relatives of mine who live in these micro apartments 
um, felt very lonely and isolated and decided to move back in with their parents during this crisis. Others who lived with three or four friends, uh, it was like party time. They were home all 24-7 and had a good time. So do you see um, a trend among just you know, called the young people's solution in urban centers? Do you think they're going to have single micros, or do you think that um, we're going to go for these, you know, we looked at the micro living concept, and I think a lot of the problems with it was the cost. So in Manhattan, when they were trying to do it, when there was something called We Live, um, which was WeWork's version of it, and I saw that, um, and they were trying to get three thousand bucks a month for a two hundred and fifty square foot apartment. They give it an included cable and Wi-Fi, and you had your furniture included, etc. But but still, I thought it was pretty expensive. And what you got for it was a small apartment and a lot of social areas. So they had kegs in the in the laundry room, and they had lots of socialization areas. And again, everything that we know now that's going to be tough, at least until we have a vaccine. So what I thought what was missing was just a lower price and cost apartments. Now, some people, there was... There were some developers now who are looking at that concept recently, and we're looking at for less expensive apartments. And I think to the extent you, you do want to be in an urban area and you do have a job, which is a big question mark, and we are going to create households, I do think smaller units are, are, going, to, are going to make a lot of sense. I wasn't a big fan of the concept of where – now, it's one thing if people knew each other, but there were – some of the models were – we're gonna. You have a four-bedroom apartment, and we're gonna assign your roommate. I just was never a fan of that. I thought it created a lot of issues, security, etc. Um, and a lot of them even had co-ed situations. So I, I thought that was sort of ripe for a lot of problems. So again, uh, COVID's a big accelerator. So I think some of these weren't working before, and they won't work now. But I do think the idea of having lower-priced apartments for people who do have jobs and will still want to live in urban cores, I think, is is a good idea because one thing is is clear: is people will be making less money in this environment. Okay, so we have uh, a few minutes left, and I have a history of usually the, the call can get a little bit depressing, uh, but today is actually pretty optimistic, So, but I'm still going to go with the, my usual method, which is asking each of the remaining callers to say something a little bit optimistic about what they see out there. And, Pamela, I'm going to start with you. Pamela, um, what sort of optimistic thing can you point to that we may have missed that give us some upside to the current situation? Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, one upside is that we have an opportunity to remember our shared humanity. We have an opportunity to to revisit what we want as a society. Um, I know that, you know, the way I think about it is that, you know, in, in thinking about the unclaimed who are the most kind of forgotten or extreme examples of isolated people in the world, if we can come together and we mourn them as they do in L.A. and other places in the world, there's really an opportunity to bring back all folds of society and to really, you know, come together and to, to bridge divides. And so I, I do think there's a lot of hope um, and a lot of opportunity for reuniting aspects of the society when we bring in um, the forgotten and the vulnerable. Tom, what do you see optimistic to think about? I think, again, I think a lot of trends that were already happening are going to continue to happen. So, And I think some of these trends were important to make changes in the way we did things. So, uh, look, we're, I think also it means that a lot of people realize that they want socialization and they're anxious to get back to it. And I think we'll get back to a program that will make a lot of sense. Now, I think our cities will look different. I think the way real estate is utilized will be different. But those, again, were trends I think were happening before, and they'll just accelerate them. Okay. My brother, Ron? 
You know, I think um, you're seeing hotels opening slowly, but they're opening. I mean, um, we own the Cosmo in Las Vegas, and that's going to open pretty soon, like in the next handful of weeks. Um, offices are, are ramping up their plans. Um, friends, you know, friends that I talk to, especially the younger ones, really want to go back to work. So I'm hopeful that COVID isn't here forever and that the vaccines and the drugs and the other therapeutics that are, that are getting developed will appear and, and, and allow us to restart faster. Great. Uh, David Blitzer? I'm going to quickly go on two ends of the spectrum. I have been quite um, impressed and um, optimistic about the collaboration that is going on from a research uh, and science perspective. I think we've just seen a very, very different level of collaboration that has ever occurred uh, in history. And I think lots of good things will come out of that, not just here, but for the future as well. And then lastly, I am optimistic that we will see some major sports uh, return to their fields and courts and ice uh, at some point over the summer into the fall. Thank you. Myron? Uh, just the um, shock itself creates um, a breakdown of the tyranny of the status quo. So you get more innovation, more change, and hopefully um, more adaptability and resilience, you know, built into the way people think about investment and the way they think about how they run their lives. So, movement, you know, it's not... Uh, basically worrying so much about how we do relative to others or how we do relative to um, benchmarks, but it's really absolutely how we do and what's the important thing about time and how we incorporate that. So I've seen more movement in the direction of thinking about the value of these uh, these movements. Jerry? Uh, yeah, two points. Um, one is about the advantages of metrics. Uh, one of the advantages of the uh, uh, collaboration and exchange of information that's occurring uh, is that when you get below the level of deceptive metrics on the national level and so on, you'd, and you get to more fine-tuned me uh, metrics, people are getting a much better sense of what the actual circumstances are uh, under which uh, COVID is likely to occur and under which it's likely to be uh, fatal and what to do about it um, and what groups it strikes most and what kinds of population densities and, and all sorts of other things that I'm sure we have yet to discover. But the amount that's been learned in the last two months um, is actually quite immense. And it's really... And um, related to that is this is this issue that your previous uh, speakers spoke about about collaboration and it's, it's not just the extent of collaboration that's really quite remarkable the international extent of it but the the speed at which it occurs and because of the existence of the internet which is one of the things that makes this pandemic so different uh, from any past pandemic and why for example extrapolating from the 1918 to 19 flu is uh, is so fallacious because the, the circumstances are so different this time. Daniel? Well, we've Zoomed our way to Zoom, so that's a big gain and it could affect things a lot. I would echo what Professor Scholl said about breaking up the status quo and habits. Um, where that's going to go, you asked for optimism, so yeah, let's be optimistic, but I really don't know. Okay. And Richard? Uh, I think we're going to see an enormous expansion of telehealth. Uh, you know, this is really the first time in my life that I ever 
did a Zoom call with a patient who was only 25 yards away in what we called our COVID corral. Uh, patients who were coming in with COVID symptoms who I didn't want to gown up, dress. They didn't want the full bill of coming to the ED. We were doing a COVID swab, and we were just kind of chatting with them and going over symptoms. But I think in the future we're going to see much more telehealth and uh, lots more biometric monitoring on digital devices that will then be used in consultation with our private physicians to determine the need to go to the hospital and get further intervention. So just as, you know, you mentioned uh, Zuckerberg talking about working from home, I think so much of our healthcare is going to move to a telehealth uh, environment, which is actually tremendously beneficial in terms of decreasing cost, decreasing time for patients to get to physicians, and just making better decisions of how we use our health resources. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. It's 4 o'clock uh, uh, Chicago time, 5 o'clock Eastern. Um, that ends what happens next, week 10. I'd like to thank our speakers for joining us and our listeners for listening in. You can disconnect. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Goodbye. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This does conclude today's conference call. Thank you for your participation.